At Speedway, we've always been here to get you what you need when you need it. We're committed to keeping our stores open, clean, and safe, so you can stay fueled and refreshed all summer long. We've got cold drinks for hot days and frozen drinks for even hotter ones, plus energy boosts, quick bites, and pick-me-ups. We're always on your way, and we're always here for you. So no matter what you need, when you stop by, we'll be ready. Now buy any three cooler beverages and get 500 bonus Speedy Rewards points. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And we want to give a warm welcome to our new affiliates in Atlanta, Atlanta's Progressive Talk, America's One Radio. Thanks for joining us today here on the Generation Progress Takeover. So over the last couple of weeks, and I don't think this will be a surprise to anyone about what we're talking about today, um, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen um, protests and uprisings across the country to call out the systemic racism and policing, and I think the state-sanctioned violence against Black people generally in this country that dates back 400 years to before the founding of the United States. Um, in many cities, we've seen on on social media more than even news because sometimes these these clips don't get played. But these protests have been met with wildly disproportionate, uh, sometimes illegal, and often outright violent reactions from police. Uh, tear gas, uh, batons, even cars have been used as weapons against protesters. Um, but and, I, and obviously, we've had incendiary rhetoric uh, coming from from the White House. Uh, I believe it's now 1600 Black Lives Plaza, um, talking about uh, a desire to 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 really just shut down in violent ways the protests. But we've seen the opposite. I was out this past weekend. I know thousands upon thousands and perhaps even millions of others were also out this past weekend um, and in recent days continuing to protest. And it's encouraging to see how many people are standing up on this issue at long last and calling not just on elected officials, but on each other to rethink the role of policing, to finally confront and address structural and systemic racism in this country, and to really just proudly declare that Black Lives Matter. Um, so to talk with us more about the roots of systemic racism and how we can further the work to dismantle white supremacy and, and what this means, both from a policy and politics and even a cultural standpoint, we are joined today by Dr. Ted Johnson, Senior Fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Ted, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, us too. Us too. Um, before we dive further into it, um, Ted, would you mind just giving our, our listeners a quick overview of, of, of your role at the Brennan Center and how you come to this work? 
Yeah, so I took an unorthodox path to uh, to racial justice work through the military. I spent my first uh, 20 years of my career there. But um, during a period as a White House fellow in 2011, 2012, I was exposed to a lot of the domestic policy issues, got to sort of step out of national security things. And the year following was when Trayvon Martin is, is killed and President Obama begins to talk about um, racial violence. Uh, there are more black men that are killed, unarmed black men by police. And my passion for thinking about cybersecurity and other nations quickly vanished. And I wanted to do something to contribute to um, domestic politics here, especially on questions of race. So through a long and twisted path um, in, in a few years, I landed at the Brennan Center. Uh, the Brennan Center is a nonpartisan law and policy organization uh, focused on defending our systems of democracy, defending voting rights, ending mass incarceration, and protecting our civil liberties. And in my role there, naturally all of those issues intersect with race. And I look specifically at the question of race and those issues and the role that politics plays in what public policy outcomes are possible given political environments, the national mood and public opinion. Got it, thanks. Thanks for that, thanks for that background. Um, so last, last July, you came on the show to talk with us um, uh, about racism uh, and about some racist comments and policies that were coming out of the Trump administration, the state of racism sort of more generally. And there was there was one of the things that you said on that show that has stuck with me, and I've actually gone back to it multiple times over the past uh, few days here. Um, you said, if we do not address the long-lasting historic racial divisions between us, then the idea of America cannot persist. There is no way we can keep racial hierarchy in place and believe that we are all created equal. Right. And we were that line came as we were talking about you had essentially said if we don't address racism and and the legacy of racism and the continued impact of racism that it will it could be the downfall of America essentially. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, to go yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I think, so the, the first thing um, I, I, I want to clarify is, one, I think of the United States and America as two separate concepts. I mean, naturally, the United States of America is the formal title of the nation, but I think of the United States as the geopolitical entity that is, is a government, that has a constitution, et cetera. And I think of America as the idea, the principles upon which the nation was founded, principles that we've never lived up to but that are still aspirational. And so in separating it this way, I can reason why the nation has never achieved racial equality um, and, and it, it has not, racial equality has not destroyed the nation yet because the United States, the entity, the geopolitical entity can live quite well with racism. We've proven it for 250 plus years. So it's, the it is possible to have an illiberal democracy. Jim Crow was that. Slavery, the, the institution of slavery, constituted an illiberal democracy in the United States. But if we are to believe in the idea of America and the idea of equality, that we all have inalienable rights, then you cannot hold that idea next to slavery. You cannot hold that idea next to Jim Crow. And you can't hold that idea next to instruments of state power uh, treating segments of society because of the color of their skin differently and criminalizing them um, and saying that this is also 
in the best interest of of the United States and the principles of America that that we stand for. And so, if the if the ideas are contradictory, uh, if the if it's the it becomes an existential paradox, and one of the things has to give either the United States is in a liberal democracy where apartheid is okay, or it becomes closer to the vision of America that our greatest Americans have painted uh, for centuries. And uh, we we try to hew closer to that vision, but you can't you, you can't do both. You've got to make a choice. So a lot has happened, right, in the last eleven months since you said that. Um, and and hearing that that sort of conversation that that you just had with us right now about we can't both be the idea of America and still live in this place where some people are criminalized and others aren't, or some people have violence inflicted on them and others don't because of the color of their skin. At so at a high level, do you think we are? any closer to addressing this than than we've been in our in our in our history um so i i do think that uh that black americans specifically can touch more freedom than they have in decades centuries past uh so i i think we're trending in the right direction but we've not yet arrived um whether we ever will arrive or not is is a is a philosophical question perhaps that that's worthy of debate but i think that it's incumbent upon every generation of americans to ensure that the nation they leave behind is closer to the vision than the one they were born into i do think we are making progress in that direction to include setbacks uh periodic periodically and that's that's also been part of the story of america but there's two things here one is are our government institutions protecting the rights of all of its people if you know no matter what the uh the their religion race ethnicity gender sex etc um or is it does it advantage some over others and then there's the question of value even in even if we have the perfect public policy structures laws constitutional rights etc if we value some of us less than others then perfect public policy will be implemented terribly and bias, racism, sexism, et cetera, will come out the other end. So I do think it's possible for us to get closer to a better, uh, a, a to, to craft a better public policy, to create a better country. The question before us is, are we able to accompany that public policy with an, a the decrease in the value gap between white Americans and, and people of color? Will we will we value lives the same, um, no matter what public policy says, and and that remains to be seen. That remains to be seen. Got it. And when we so we're gonna we're gonna take a break here in just a little bit, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about sort of the events here over the last couple of weeks, um, and how you feel like, and and what you think about um, how we arrived at this point, what sort of um, drove the movement that we're seeing now. Um, so when we when we come back here on the Generation Progress Takeover the Leslie Marshall Show, we'll be coming back with Dr. Ted Johnson and talk a bit more about the current state of race relations, racism, uh, and white supremacy in this country. the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm Brent J. Cohen. Uh, and today on the Generation Progress Takeover, we are talking with Dr. Ted Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Um, before this commercial break, we were talking uh, about 
the root causes of systemic racism um, in this country and how we can further work to dismantle white supremacy. Um, you know, lots lots has happened in the lots has happened in the past couple of weeks. Still a long, long way for this country to go. Um, so, Ted, this is happening during a pandemic that is disproportionately infecting and killing Black Americans. Um, I was wondering if. Do you see a connection um, between uh, these crises um, and how these crises might be related? I do. Uh, so, so one, I think the disparate impact that coronavirus has had on black and brown communities, especially black communities, uh, became a story just as the news and video and 911 calls of the killings of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery, and of George Floyd came uh, to, into the public sphere. And so uh, I, I think the two things converging alongside the stay-at-home orders for much of the country, um, schools are out, parents aren't commuting, there, there was a moment where no one's gaze could be distracted from what was happening in the country and the disparate impact of who was, who was being affected by what was happening. And it created a horrible, perfect storm of sorts because the video of Floyd's killing, um, the length of it, the casualness of the officer on, on George Floyd's neck, there was nowhere to turn. There were no PTA meetings to go to. There wasn't soccer practice. There weren't you know, happy hours. People had were sort of sequestered in their homes having to face what happens when you allow racism to run rampant through our structures. And I think the convergence of those things is why we're seeing protests that are very much unlike those that we saw in 2015 and 2016 around Black Lives Matter. Many more white Americans have joined as, as Americans of all races, of all ages, of all pa both parties now. Um, and this has caught fire in a way that uh, I, I don't know would have happened if not for the pandemic and uh, sort of a, a captured nation that, that couldn't afford and, and actually didn't have the luxury of turning away. Yeah, I think um, one of one of the um, sayings that I've seen going around, I believe it's attributed to Will Smith, is there are not more incidences of um, police brutality happening in this country. It's just that they're all being filmed now. Everybody's got a camera phone. Yeah. And, and so I think one of the you know, we, we often look back at the 92 L.A. riots and the acquittal of the four officers that had beaten Rodney King as um, a sort of a moment to focus on how police brutality intersects with black communities and the history of that. But I think one of the biggest developments from that wasn't just that the police got off from criminal behavior. Um, I think that it was technology recording what had been happening in black communities since the beginning. And the even when that beating was recorded and the officers weren't convicted, I think that sort of was a foreshadowing of what we still see, which is police being recorded killing or beating black and brown people, and many of them still going uh, going back to work and not being held accountable. We saw this, and uh, I mean, I could list off the number of kings, but even most recently, the Breonna Taylor killing, those police have still not been held accountable. So th the idea is that even with technology, it's not enough to uh, get rid of racism. Like watching racism happen or the effects of it isn't a cleanser 
of it. So when uh, after the Black Lives Matter protest brought this to the nation's attention once more in 2015, 2016, a lot of police departments and a lot of calls for policy change were about body cameras because the idea was if police know that they're being observed, that they're, they would change their behavior. And what we're seeing is that is not the case. I think what's different this time is the national reaction to it um, is is much more comprehensive, much more widespread and focused, and perhaps something more uh, enduring uh, from a change perspective can come from. Yeah, I you know I Ted, I was a kid in Los Angeles um, when the Rodney King beating took place, when that video was seen um, widely, when the uprisings happened. Um, and and you're absolutely right. And then I, I was ironically at the Justice Department when this whole movement to do body cameras came out, right? Some mm-hmm. 20, twenty whatever years later, it feels different this time. Yeah. When I when I walked away from the White House on um, on Sunday, there were hundreds of young white people marching up the street chanting "Black Lives Matter," right? And I was stunned by it. Um, and it doesn't feel like this moment is going away. It feels like, you know, the, the sort of saying, it's, it's a movement, not a moment. It feels true right now. Do you, do you see this having a more enduring or lasting impact this time around? Um, and, is it, and is it because people are forced to, to stay in their home and sort of sit with this in a way that, that they haven't been forced to in the past? Yeah. So on the latter point, I do think that that's a, a big factor. And, and whether this leads to enduring change, you know, it remains to be seen. I've been hopeful before. I think generally I have a hopeful disposition uh, and I've been disappointed before. And, and so I, I, I'm, uh, I don't want to count, count the, the chicks before they've hatched. But what I will say, I think, one, you pointed it out that the, the demographics of the protesters are different than anything we've seen maybe ever. Um, certainly when it comes to uh, racial protest and police brutality, that sort of thing. The, the other part, though, is um, there have been protests in every state in the Union in American territories, never mind those that are happening in other countries. So that means in Idaho, in Montana, there are Black Lives Matter marches, marches with no black people in them because no black people live in, in these towns. There are marches in parts of the South where that are that used to be, and perhaps to some extent still are, KKK or white supremacist group strongholds. There are children whose parents would never say Black Lives Matter who are going out to Black Lives Matter marches in defiance. So this moment absolutely is different. So just today, Republicans are announced that they are going to start pulling together a, a bill to sort of put some of this in check. And Mitch McConnell says that there's racial discrimination in our law enforcement systems, and that the nation has yet to reckon with its original sin. Um, I never thought I would hear those words out of McConnell's mouth. Mitt Romney was marching with Black Lives Matter uh, in in a march just outside the White House last weekend tweeting Black Lives Matter. Four years ago, a year ago, I never thought that this would happen. This moment is absolutely different. I think we will get legislation out of this. I I do think there is a national restructuring or reforming of police departments that's coming. The question is, will that stop disproportionate violence um, from being exacted on black communities? And um, will that close the value gap? This is a term Eddie Glau from Princeton uses, the value gap between how America perceives its black people and, and the difference uh, from that perception that it has from, from those of others. 
Yeah, there's so much here to dig into and want to pick up that conversation when we come back from this break. Also want to pick up the fact that, you know, it's it's absolutely protesting the systemic racism of policing, but also looking at it in the healthcare system and other systems mm-hmm. in this country. And we're seeing some of that come up at these protests as well. So we'll be we'll be right back to pick up on this thread here on the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Hello and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And we are joined today by Dr. Ted Johnson of the Brennan Center for Justice. And we are we are talking about the events of the last couple of weeks here, um, putting it in context of 400 years of systemic racism and talking about what this mo- movement and moment might might contribute to come in coming next. And so, Ted, thanks again for joining us here on the show. Yeah, thank you. So the uh, one of the one of the things that that we had started to talk just a little bit about before going to break was the fact that um, this is becoming something that Republicans are talking about. Mitch McConnell, you mentioned, just came out with a statement around racism and, and the fact that things are unequal. We're hearing, uh, you know, uh, Mitt Romney marched with Black Lives Matter protests, and, we're, and we know that Democrats on on Senate and House side both are already coming forward with policy proposals. So clearly something is going to happen, and we're seeing things happen at the local level as well. Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles talking about reducing the budget in uh, the LAPD's budget, excuse me. Uh, Mayor de Blasio has now come forward talking about he's open to reducing the NYPD budget, and the Minneapolis City Council is saying that they are going to disband the current police department. So there are a range of policy proposals from disbanding to reducing budgets to more reform-minded, let's eliminate chokeholds, right? Which is hugely important, but certainly not at the same level as disbanding, disbanding a department altogether. So how do you think, or, or, or what does it look like from a policy perspective to ensure that the policy and legislations that are passed and implemented are actually responding to the demands of the movement versus seeking to pacify the movement? Is there, is, what does that look like? How do elected officials appropriately respond and has the movement hold them accountable here? Yeah, and, and so I think the back half of your question um, is the answer to the front half, which is the only way politicians will pass sound law and then implement that law in a fair and just way is if they are held accountable by by the citizenry. And as soon as the public's gaze shifts, then politicians who are not committed to the cause will shift their priorities. And so we run the risk of addressing something in a crisis and then uh, dusting our hands off and moving on to the next issue as if we've solved it. And racism is just not one of the things that that uh, where, where that strategy or that approach works, it, it it's failed at every turn. So, the, and so in public policy scholarship, there's this, there you know, the, there's a the a, this guy named Kingdon who talks about policy windows, and he basically says the way policy usually ends up passing is there's a problem that a crisis 
for example, can reveal, and that there are policy entrepreneurs or people with solutions to that crisis um, waiting for the opportunity to apply their solution. And then the politics of the moment um, eventually become conducive. And when the problem plus the solution plus the politics are all in alignment, then a policy window opens and allows good things to happen. The problem is once a good thing happens, like say the Republicans, Democrats get together, pass a bipartisan law enforcement reform bill, then they move on. The window closes and now it's someone else's term, some other issues term, uh, time to be addressed. But the policy rarely solves the problem. Part of that is because implementation is almost always nine tenths of whether a policy is good or not. Not the words in the law, not the the, the ceremony around the, the signing, but but when the law meets the people on implementation, is there proper oversight? Is there enough commitment from elected officials and appointees to ensure sounded impl and just implementation? Or is it um, is it just another thing that you throw a government worker on just to check a box and aren't committed to the cause? We will see, we will see, but the only way this sticks is if the public demands uh, our government's attention to the issue after they, they high five one another when, when a bill is signed. Yeah. I, yeah. I, sorry, go ahead, Charlotte. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say like some, uh, that all totally makes sense. And I appreciate you breaking it down, um, with having the windows of alignment there, Ted. I just, I gotta, I gotta say with some of like with Mitch McConnell, like, uh, releasing a statement is one thing, but I'm a little bit in like a, a believe it when I see it type mode with some of that stuff. Right. Like, I mean, this is a man who's going <laughs> to do everything in his power to make sure that Donald Trump is, uh, reelected, um, <laughs> coming up here. And, when we've got a somebody in the White House who is emboldening, whose words and actions are emboldening and fanning the flames of white supremacy, um, then like how much do some of these things, does Mitch McConnell's statement matter? You know, so it's sort of like uh, talk is cheap. Um, I'm interested to see um, exactly, as you said, um, Ted, like the, the implementation um, and, you know, uh, how resources are allocated here. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And the, the thing is, when public opinion, all the polls are showing something like three and four Americans believe there's a, pro a larger problem that the nation needs to address to include a majority of white Americans and black Americans and Hispanic Americans. So it's not an overall majority, just an overall majority, it's a majority of, of almost every demographic. So it's in the interest politically of both sides, both parties to do something because the public, it's, it's now publicly acceptable. The, the problem is some of this in response to the public will is performative and performances of solidarity do not last. And so we will know in short order, a month, three months, who is serious about the moment we're in now and affecting change and who is just responding to public opinion. And as soon as the wind shift, their priorities will as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think and I think what makes this perhaps a little bit more challenging than in past cases to an extent um, is you have the performative element, which I think we've seen before, um, perhaps not on this particular issue, um, but where elected officials or candidates or politicians respond to public will in a, in a half-hearted way. Um, but even for those who are truly invested and do see systemic racism in policing um, and do feel like we need legislative solutions now to finally address it, there are 
a wide array and a continuum of options in terms of what that looks like. And is it going to be sort of the tinkering around the edges reform, well-intentioned reform that that could certainly make things less harmful? Or is it going to be a deep dive into upending a system um, that may be harmful, but we're used to and we know? And it's always scary to move away from something that you know, even if you feel like it's not good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you talked about the impact of coronavirus on black communities. Um, and, and so when when we talk about systemic racism, as you guys well know, th this is a system of processes, of institutions, of actors that all work in, in tandem to create outcomes that disproportionately affect one group of people. And when it's racist, it's because of that people's race or, or the, the race of the, the people who are disproportionately harmed by, by the system um, is, is what makes the thing uh, racist. And so let's say they do something around law enforcement, but if they don't do anything about poverty, if they do nothing about um, mortgage unfairness or health inequality or education inequality, um, transportation, like, you, you end up just um, putting window dressing on a problem that requires fundamental fundamental uh, transformation. And I don't know that this moment is going to be the thing that sparks change in every socioeconomic factor that requires it, but perhaps it can be the first step that creates momentum towards toward creating a more fair and just society that reaches into all those systems of, uh, of of unfairness that, um, that, that plagued the country. So what do you think needs to happen next? Or like, what do you think we need to make sure happens next to ensure that momentum isn't lost and that something does change? Like, what do you think comes next? Yeah. So I, I do think a policy win is important. I, I think, um, politicians have to recognize the value of responding to the will of the people. And if we leave the moment we're in and there's nothing substantive in, in public policy that results, um, I think the momentum could be lost until some other tragedy happens and then we're forced to, you know, the, the, the embers of racism light the country on fire again. So I, I think a public policy win is important. I think the connections that are being built in the protests happening across the country, those can't atrophy over time. And so the new people that we're seeing at protests, the new relationships, the new networks that are being formed have to be strengthened and then leveraged to ensure that at state, local, municipal, as well as the federal level, that change happens in those places. And that's only going to happen if the public um, begins to, uh, to, to, to strengthen their connections to one another across lines of race, class, uh, geography, et cetera. Um, but the, the other part of this, and this is probably where I'll get the most pushback, is I also think there needs to be a person or group of people that embody the movement. Uh, folks that that the, the nation can turn to when things get tough, when enthusiasm is low, when 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 people are a little lukewarm about the whole issue. Um, I, I think you need someone who becomes the champion. And I don't know who that person or people will be. But um, I, I do think American culture sort of requires that transformative figure. Got it. So we're going to jump off the break and we'll be right back uh, with Dr. Ted Johnson. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. 
Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Bryn J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And we are back here talking with Dr. Ted Johnson of the Brennan Center for Justice about the events of the last few weeks here um, and what it could mean going forward. So, Ted, one of the one of the things we haven't touched on yet, but will have huge implications, obviously, for years to come, are the elections in November. How do you think that the recent protests and uprisings and the reactions to finally confronting, at least in words, systemic racism in this country uh, will impact uh, the November elections? Yeah, this is uh, this is the thing that I'm watching most closely, mostly just because I'm like political science nerd is is sort of my my genre. <laughs> um, so here's what I think. I, I think uh, it can impact a few ways. One, will people be able to vote in ways that they traditionally have? Who knows if we see coronavirus spike again in the fall? Um, and if mail-in balloting isn't widespread, um, if if uh, if people have a hard time getting to the polls, that will change what the electorate looks like and, and could uh, influence the, the outcome. The, the bigger thing, though, I, I think is that there may be a sense that the public uprisings, the civil uprisings, unrest we're seeing now will immediately and inevitably translate to higher voter participation in the fall. And if campaigns believe that, if the parties believe that, they may devote resources to things like advertising um, instead of funding and resourcing grassroots mobilization groups that will help increase turnout. So I think one of the worst things that can happen is for us to get lazy in reaching out to voters and ensuring that their passion today translates into participation during the election. The other thing I think we have to be wary about, um, depending on which side of the aisle you sit, if you think anger is going to translate into um, support for your candidate, you should be very careful. If you think um, anger at rioters is going to help your Trump uh, win, or if you think anger at the president is going to help uh, Biden win, then you should rethink that. Political science literature talks lots about the, the different ways anger plays um, on voters and the different effects that uh, violence in society, either from riots or from police, have on, on voter turnout and voter choices. So um, the outcome of the November election is really going to be a testament to how the moment we're presently in is marshaled by officials, parties, and campaigns um, to, to determine who our, our next president will be. I uh, That point about anger will not necessarily translate to votes or to voter turnout is just so, at least for specific candidates, is so hugely important. And I think the 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 biggest mistake, as you said, that a campaign could make is assuming that this is an automatic boom or, or bust for your candidate and sort of shy away from doing the work that needs to be done to to engage folks, to to share the platform with them, to help people see that the policies this administration or that administration would put forward are in line with or not in line with the protesters and the demands the, the demands that are coming forward from a policy perspective. Yeah, yeah. I, one, there's something Kamala Harris said, um, I think when she was still in the race for, for presidency, and she said, it's very simple, she said, it matters who's in those rooms. And she was referring to uh, being a, a DA or an AG in California, and um, the fact that she was in the room meant no matter what the co topic of conversation was, 
there was a black American perspective in the room that had to be accounted for no matter what decision went forward. And so I think as voters go to the polls this fall, they'll need to be thinking about if we want the moment we're experiencing now to last, then it matters which people we put into the rooms who will decide how policy is implemented going forward. Even if it's not policing policy, if it's about setting interest rates by the Fed, if it's about how to respond to uh, an act of terrorism, no matter what the issue is, poor policy implementation usually results in people of color suffering more. And so it will matter who is in those rooms, from the president to the vice president, to all of the cabinet level appointees and, and on down, uh, and so if we're serious about the moment, we'll need to think seriously about who we are going to elect to put in those rooms and appoint to those rooms to ensure that we, we don't lose the momentum from from now. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Ted. And also, I mean, working at Generation Progress, we see over and over again that uh, young voters don't turn out to vote against something, they turn out to vote for ideas. Yes. They don't turn out to vote against candidates or for a candidate. They're turning out to vote for ideas and policies and like social change that will make a difference in their communities when they see that somebody's actually listening to them and saying like, oh, okay, I heard what you said. Um, and here's my plan for that. Uh, that's what people are paying attention to. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And so th this is a great point. And this is just before um, Obama's presidency ended. I think he did an interview uh, with The Atlantic and said, look, you know, ultimately people don't really have an appetite for a doom and gloom message. Hope prevails. Um, and that is true for younger voters, for voters of color. But for what 2016 showed us and what a lot of the political science literature has shown since then is that for white moderates, white conservatives, anger is a motivating force. And so this explains part of the reason why Trump was so successful in demonizing immigrants and, and some of his other rhetoric, because it made some voters fearful that the nation they love was about to change. And that fear... Uh, he was able to marshal that and turn some of it into anger, and that increased turnout for the people he needed in order to win elections. But for the most of the country, you have to inspire people to get them off the couch, not not make them angry. And so you're absolutely right that um, um, if if you are want to make people pissed off at the system and expect that to translate into um, your victory, and you're targeting the wider swath of Americans. It's not going to work. You have to find an inspiring, unifying message and the right charismatic candidates to bring that message and convince people that it's uh, it's uh, coming from a place of passion and not political expediency. You know, just one one quick thought, and then I'm going to pivot here in a sec. But one quick thought to to Kamala Harris's point that you raised that it matters who's in the room is we're seeing that in Minneapolis right now in Minnesota, mm -hmm. where the prosecution transferred from the local district attorney to the state attorney general, who was Keith Ellison. And Keith right. Ellison, within two days, brought charges against the three officers who hadn't yet been charged and upgraded the charges for the one who had been charged, but right. with third degree murder. And now he's facing second degree murder. And so it absolutely matters who's in those seats. Absolutely. Perfect example. So, so Ted, we know that there are tons of resources out there that are available for people listening that, that they can use to learn more, to take action, to familiarize, familiarize themselves with what's happening, including an action toolkit that our team at Generation Progress put out that folks can find at genprogress.org. Um, but wondering if you have suggestions for people who are looking for ways to either um, 
sort of better educate themselves or to actively get involved right now? If you have suggestions about what people should be picking up or what organizations they should be they should be looking into. Yeah, so there's there's a ton. Uh, I, I will do a commercial for the Brennan Center <laughs> at this point because um, the moment we're in speaks to all of the work that, that we do. Um, first, there's tons of anti-racist literature out there, books, podcasts, um, academics, and um, and you know other public intellectuals. And I, I think there's even like a, a book list trending on social media about like three or four books, White Fragility. Um, how to be anti-racist or, or a couple that immediately come to mind. Uh, for the Brennan Center, though, so there's a few concerns. One is that um, will the election happen like it's supposed to this fall? The Constitution says yes, the law says yes, but but there's a fear that um, even if it's held, it may not be held fairly. So at thebrennancenter.org, you can go and look at all of the work we're doing to ensure uh, free and fair elections and access to the ballot is available to the most people. The other part that this brings up is a question about the relationship between the citizenry and law enforcement. And the other uh, one of the other things we do at the Brennan Center is, is putting in, trying to put an end to mass incarceration. But this also means working with law enforcement leaders across the country, sheriffs, police chiefs, and even correctional officers to come up with and, and to collaborate on ways to make the system more fair and just. So we have solutions to uh, or ideas for uh, for policy for uh, how citizens relate to law enforcement. And the third thing is there is a fear that the president may use emergency powers to do things that are unprecedented. Um, we saw how how he used federal forces to clear out Lafayette Park in D.C. for a photo op in front of a church. Um, we've seen how we used emergency powers for immigration um, questions. And so one of the other things we do at the Brennan Center is explore presidential emergency powers and the, the limits of that. So I would encourage you all to sort of take a look at those materials. The last thing I'll plug is my book, which won't be out for another several months, but it is about how can we establish multiracial solidarity to ensure every citizen has access to the full rights and privileges um, and protections of, of citizenship and from the state. And I think this is this moment that we're in is a taste of what that could look like if we're able to uh, harness it and amplify it and so that it endures uh, for, for years to come. Thanks so much, Ted. Um, and that is all the time we have for today. Thanks so much to Ted Johnson, our producer, Mark Grimaldi, our senior press associate, Emily Leach, and to all of our listeners. Uh, you can find more of those resources that Ted was talking about also on genprogress.org. Um, you've been listening to a Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show, and we'll talk to you all next week. I'm an emergency medical technician. I've worked a lot of vehicle crashes and too often alcohol is involved. I've seen so many lives lost. Some were drunk drivers, some were just people going about their day, all because someone was drinking and said, I'm okay to drive. It's not okay. Police are cracking down on impaired drivers now, so drive sober or get pulled over. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. Right now, switch your family to T-Mobile and get four lines for $25 a line with AutoPay and 5G access included on America's largest 5G network. So don't wait. Get unlimited and nationwide 5G access for the whole family for just $25 a line. Visit a T-Mobile store or T-Mobile.com today. Plus taxes and fees. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using over 50 gigs a month due to data prioritization. Video at 480p. Unlimited while on our network. Qualifying credit and full plus lines required. Capable device required for 5G. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain features. See T-Mobile.com.